0: We are moving along in this study, and we're at the end of chapter 3. I'm going to read our passage for this morning, and then help us to get our, our minds engaged a bit. All right, Let's read the passage again. Dave read it earlier, but read it one more time with me. Verses 31 through 36, it says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, But the wrath of God abides on him. So this passage really centers around, in my interpretation, verse 33, where it talks about the truthfulness of God and it deals with whether or not we humans see and agree with that truthfulness or not. But it really is highlighting the truthfulness of God and how Jesus brings the truth of God from heaven to earth. And the passage highlights our desperate need for that reality and the options available to us, whether to accept or reject, whether to receive, believe that truth or to ignore that truth or to reject that truth. That's what we're dealing with. Well, to help us kind of get our our gears going this morning, I want you to think with me for a moment about our human quest for truth. We are all in search of truth throughout our lives in a variety of ways. And, And there's a very real sense in which not just those of us sitting in this room, but, but really everybody in this world, we are constantly looking for truth, trying to understand things, trying to, trying to grasp what is real or what is actual, what actually occurred in a certain situation. So I want to give you a few examples to help you appreciate how we are constantly endeavoring to find or discover truth. So one comes from, and these are going to go from increasing degrees of significance, all right, but one just comes from the world of sports. And, and my mind goes to last Sunday's game, the NFC championship game between the Philadelphia Eagles, calm down, Noels. Philadelphia Eagles and the San Francisco 49ers, right? We know they're very excited. And we are for them, even though we're not necessarily for the Eagles, but we're for their excitement. But in that game, there was a play. It was a fourth down play. I think it was earlier in the game. It was when the, game still, when the 49ers still had a chance. It was early in the game. And there was a pass that the quarterback threw to his wide receiver on fourth down. And the receiver made this unbelievable, acrobatic, one-handed catch. I think it was uh, Devontae Smith, I believe, right? Yep, Jenny's nodding. So Devontae Smith. So he, he made this catch, pulls it in. And the camera angle of the live play and then a couple of the replays looked like a great, I mean, phenomenal catch. So then they proceed to line up and start again first down from that place. And after they run that next play, there was another review of that catch. Rob's smiling. He probably saw it. There was another review of that catch, and it was like, ah, that might not have been a catch. Like, as he was coming to the ground, it seemed like the the turf there kind of helped him make that catch and we'll just leave it there, and it's not like the 49ers had a chance anyway, but in the realm of sports, that occurs, I mean, basically every game. There are these replays, there's this, 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 this attempt to try to get what really happened, and we need one camera angle, another camera angle, another camera angle, the eyes of the referees, everyone's trying to figure out what actually happened, right? And there are a variety of examples from that, from that world. Then think with me now about the world of um, trying to solve crimes, okay? So I'm a little bit of a a true crime guy. I I enjoy those things. just kind of find it interesting when they're trying to figure out, you know, the whodunit of of a real situation. And uh, there's there's a, a very highly publicized trial going on right now of a lawyer in the South. I can't remember if it was North Carolina, South Carolina, but this prominent lawyer, wealthy lawyer, who allegedly killed his wife and his adult son, I think his name's Alex Murdoch. So they're currently going through the trial of this. And there was this fascinating portion of the trial. I just caught a segment of this. But there's this fascinating portion of the trial where they're playing over and over again this tape of a law enforcement official interviewing the alleged uh, criminal here, Alex Murdoch. And it sounds like, when you hear what he's saying, it sounds like he's making a a confession. Like he's admitting to having killed his wife and his son. But here's the trick about it. Here's what's so difficult about it is You hear him say, and this is what he says, he says, I did him so bad. He's emotional, and he's distraught, and he says, I did him so bad. And the law enforcement official is testifying, saying, hey, he said, he right there confessed. In that moment of weakness, he confessed. Well, do you know what the defense is? The defense is, no, no, he didn't say, I did him so bad. He said, they did him so bad. And then you listen to it again. And, and they have these experts, these, I think they're audiologists or some of these experts who listen over and over and over again. And they literally, one of them I heard interview said, I cannot tell whether he said, I did him so bad or they did him so bad. Half the time I hear it, it sounds like I. The other half, it sounds like they. I mean, even through the, the tape, it's still just not crystal clear, which just speaks to our human limitations. We, we want to know what's true, we want to know what's actual, we want to know what's real, but we have to admit that we have limitations, and, that, and we really haven't even talked about the whole matter of deception and misperception and the things that occur when we're trying to get to the truth, or we sometimes rely upon a testimony of a person, such as the accused in that case, and we don't know if that testimony is reliable or not, if they're being truthful or not, if they're even being honest with themselves or not. So do you see how difficult it is for those of us on this planet, in this world, to to get at truth? And one final example, which is at the highest level of significance in my mind, which is, you know, we're still, we're 2023 now, but the the pandemic, the realities of the pandemic, we're still living with the ripple effects from that, and, and probably you, like me, are curious. You would love to know what actually happened, and we may never know, and there are different Theories and different testimonies out there, but we may never know because we are so limited and finite and flawed, and uh, we humans are notoriously deceptive. There's a place in Romans where it says, "Let all men be liars and let God be true." Like His testimony is the only reliable testimony, the only rock solid, entirely true purely true testimony. And this passage is about the testimony of God through the person of Jesus. And as we just considered those examples, I hope that we can appreciate just how much we need the truth from above. So let's, let's dig into it now, okay? If you remember the context, last week we were talking about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was being Asked by his disciples, hey, what do you make of Jesus? His ministry is is growing and sort of overshadowing yours. And and contrary to being discouraged by that, John was filled with, we saw last week, he was filled with joy. He was rejoicing because he knew in the exaltation of Jesus, the Messiah, there is salvation. He knew he was just a mouthpiece, just a herald. Jesus is the Savior. And so we we ended that passage, we ended that conversation with verse 30, where it says, He must increase, but I must decrease. And I don't think I mentioned this last week, but you can literally translate that. It is necessary that he increase, that that one, namely Jesus, increase, and it's necessary that I decrease. So John embraced his shrinking role, knowing that Christ was to be put forward, and when Christ was put forward and lifted up, People are drawn to him. He says later, I think it's in John 12, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And in that drawing men to himself, men and women are saved, rescued, redeemed. And so it is necessary that he increase. Well, now John continues describing, proclaiming the sole supremacy of Jesus. And that's what we're looking at beginning in verse 31. So he says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. So now there's this this contrast. And I believe here he's referring to himself when he says he who is from the earth. He may be referring to himself, or he may be talking about any other mouthpiece, but he's saying, hey, there's a a heavenly testifier, and he's the one who, most most worthy of your attention and most worthy of your listening. He is from above. He is above all. He has access to information that we desperately need, that we couldn't get from anyone other than him. We need truth from above. And so whether John is talking about his own limitations, uh, you can think of other biblical authors. They're, They're all still just men, aren't they? And they have their flaws and they have their limitations. Whether you're talking about in the Old Testament, Moses, David, then writers in the New Testament, Paul and Peter, called by God, special giftedness, special revelation, but yet limited. And and here we have not just men sent by God, like John the Baptist was sent by God, but we have God sent to men. We have Jesus as God sent to men, coming to testify of all the truths of God, that people on earth desperately need to hear and to receive. And so he's highlighting that, that contrast and the unique qualifications of Christ to be the preeminent proclaimer, preacher of truth. And then he goes into this matter of receiving or rejecting and we'll say a little bit more about this later in the passage, in verse thirty-six, but he but he introduces the idea that there are those who reject him and those who receive him. It says in verse thirty-two, no one receives his testimony, and by that he doesn't mean like literally no one. Although we could say from other places in Scripture that it, it takes a miracle for us to receive, it takes a, a work of God's Spirit for our eyes to be open to the truth. But he says here emphatically, no one receives his testimony. It's like he said earlier in chapter 1, that he came to his own and his own received him not. And if we just, just pause there for a moment and think of the significance of that, that the creator of all things, the one who made everything, the one from whom, through whom, to whom belong all things, that one came into the world and for his creatures whom he made to not receive him, to reject him, to ignore him, to not listen to him. I mean, tragic, to, to put it mildly, just tragic. And he says, but there are so many who reject, who, who will not receive this testimony in that sense of fallenness. Choosing instead to trust in their own thinking, their own perspectives... And their own lies, as it says in Romans 1, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. This just speaks to this human tendency. And there's so much misery that is a consequence of that. And, and, and he says... Um, no one receives his testimony, but he doesn't stop there. Thankfully, he says, but, in verse 33, He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. So, so there are some who receive. There are some who believe. And for them, it's like they're, they're signing off. Is when it says they've set their seal, it's, it's kind of an ancient way of saying they're signing off. Saying, saying, yes, I, I'm with him. I'm putting my stock in what he says. In his truth. Notice verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. Now this is where the Holy Spirit is introduced here. Got, we have all three members of the Trinity here being highlighted. And of course throughout throughout Scripture that's the case. But here it's, it's particularly clear and impactful where it just says the Spirit is this, this messenger working along with Jesus and there's no, there's no measure, meaning it's just this, this infinite amount of truth and the depth of the truth being spoken is like nothing before and later in John's Gospel. A number of times the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Truth. So let's think for a moment, what is it, what is it that Jesus is testifying concerning? And what is the Spirit testifying concerning? Later, it says that Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will testify of me. And then it's like, okay, so what is Jesus testifying? Well, he is, he is answering the ultimate question. So, so when I began the message, I said, hey, there are these inquiries in the area of whether it's sports or a crime. Or, and we could talk about a Innumerable other fields of study in this world where we use our human minds and we investigate and we ask questions and we try to get more and more information and more and more truth. And we can, to a degree, discover things in all these different fields of study. But what this is related to is the most important questions, the ultimate questions, what some philosophers call the prime reality questions like, is there a creator? Who is he? What is he like? Who are we? How do we get here? Where are we going? Those types of big questions, ultimate questions. And what this text is describing here is how we will never, from earthlings, from earthly beings who are from this world, we will never get those answers. You can take the most intelligent people using, using their minds and, and their research and Scientific testing and things like that. And people just dig in and dig and dig and dig. Just trying to find more and more and more information. But to answer the ultimate questions. We we need revelation from outside. We, We need revelation from above. We need truth from above. And Christ embodies that truth. And preaches that truth. And that truth is concerning who our creator is. Who he is. The one who has made us. Who he is as the author of the story of human history. The author of the story of our lives. Who he is as the one who understands everything there is to know about God. Which is why he says later in the Gospel of John, Hey, I've seen him. I've heard him. And what I've seen and what I've heard, I'm here speaking to you. That's what Jesus says concerning that relationship with his Father. He is proclaiming to us, conveying to us that truth. So it's the truth of who God is. It's the truth of who we are. And this is what we see throughout John's Gospel. We talked about this the last few weeks as well. But this idea of Jesus being the light, it's, it's, it's tied to his being the truth. It's—it's it's, He's revealing and exposing, exposing things that are true about our Creator and exposing things that are true about us. And so we see him interacting with, for example, Nathaniel. In chapter two, I believe it's chapter two. He's speaking with Nathaniel, and he speaks in such a way that makes it clear to Nathaniel that he sees right through him, that he knows him to the bottom of his being. He knows Nathaniel better than Nathaniel knows himself. It's the same thing when he talked with Nicodemus. He uh, he knew Nicodemus. He understood what Nicodemus was asking. He gave Nicodemus truth. He knew Nicodemus and his understanding of his limitations of that. He knew Nicodemus in his sin. He knew Nicodemus in his religion, and he. And he saw right through it and he ministered truth to him. And we're going to see it uh, next week. Pastor Rob will be in chapter 4 with the woman at the well. And we'll see Jesus again with that x-ray vision. Just knowing what is true and speaking the truth to people. About God. About them. About their need. About his provisions. That's what Christ is revealing. And that's what, going back to verse 34, that's what the Spirit is involved in as well as this truth-telling ministry, which is important to, to grasp because of how, even with regard to teaching on the Spirit sometimes, it can go to many different places. And certainly the Spirit has a role in our experience and in our emotions, and there's the fruits of the Spirit. But in a sense, it all kind of begins with this truth, with the truth of who God is. And and by the end of the message, I'll tie together how that's the case, okay? But just for now, just, just understand that and, and recognize that throughout this gospel, we hear the Spirit referred to as the Spirit of truth. So there's this, this very important truth telling ministry of the Spirit, testifying from God to us of truth, of that which is real, okay? Okay, so that's the, the heavenly testimony and what can be done in terms of. Rejecting, receiving, the ministry of the Spirit. And then in verse 35, now there's this heavenly relationship that is spoken of here. It says the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So so this lets us in on the, the relationship between the Father and the Son, existing from eternity past. This idea that the Father has given everything to the Son, everything into his hand, that everything belongs to him, that the Father created the world. The Son was involved in the creation of the world. The Spirit was involved in the creation of the world. And, and there's this idea of the Father turning over creation as an inheritance along with all redeemed people to the Son. And everything belongs to Him. There's a famous theologian, Abraham Kuyper, who said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Mine. His fingerprints are on everything. His trademark is on everything and everyone, including us, <laughs> including us. The Father grants this to the Son, and it's all an outworking of this loving relationship between the Father and the Son. And what's amazing about the Gospel, what's truly remarkable, is if you understand a diagnosis of the human heart as given throughout Scripture, What God is doing in sending Jesus into this world is He is sending His love into this world in a way in which we would not know or receive love without it. Like in this loveless world, the love of heaven enters earth through the person of Jesus and the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Father through the Son comes to reach us where we are in our place of rebellion and blindness and darkness and need, and it's all the sharing of this divine love that has existed forever. And I often think about this in my love of uh, of old 80s rock songs. Almost all of them are about love. I mean, the percentage that are about love, it's, it's like over 90%, it's almost all of them are about love. There's this human appreciation for love, especially romantic love, it's this most exciting enriching part of life and we all know that's the case humanly speaking and nobody in the world would really disagree I don't think on that and yet it's so limited and fallible and flawed and broken relationships and all the evidence is that we humans aren't really good at that even though we can on some level appreciate it right Well, this is saying there's a kind of love that is a perfect love. It's a heavenly love. And God cares so much for us in our fallenness, in our condition of misery, that He imparts that love to us. He sends Jesus to us. He shares His love for His Son with us by sending His Son. That's why we read earlier in chapter 3, for God so loved the world. To just keep that to Himself, but shares that with us. And so here, John is highlighting With this idea of truth coming from above, that this is not just, you know, it says later in the New Testament, speak the truth in love, right? That's exactly what God is always doing. He's speaking the truth in love as a manifestation of his love. And everything, as part of that revelation, he tells us, everything belongs to the Son. We're not cosmic orphans. Things are not spiraling out of control. He's not confused. He's not blinded in any way. He's not overpowered in any way. The darkness, it says in chapter 1, does not overpower the light, does it? That's what we read in chapter 1. No, the the light is shining and it is succeeding. It is saving. And even... As we sit here together this morning, well, as you sit there and I stand up here, as we're together this morning, to be precise, God's love is being poured out to us through common grace and through the specific grace of gospel preaching, preaching of the truth. Let's think a little bit about now this idea of kind of the earthly options. And we said a little bit about it earlier with regard to rejecting and receiving, and here we come back around to that. Verse 36, where it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Turn with me to John 17 for a moment, because we could ask the question, "Well, what is is eternal life? I mean, it's going to heaven when we die, surely. It is that. But in John 17, Jesus puts a very fine point on it. And he answers the question as to what it is. Saying explicitly, John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To have eternal life is to have truth. And not just generically speaking, but to have the true God. To know him. That's eternal life. That's, That's what it means to be alive, spiritually speaking, is to be alive in knowing, not just knowing about, but knowing relationally, knowing intimately, our Creator, our God. And through Christ, we come to know Him. Remember later, disciples are are confused and at one point they say, "Uh, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen Him. He is the most clear, later in Hebrews and Colossians throughout the New Testament, say he's the most clear representation of God you're ever going to see. In Christ we see the heart of the Father displayed in living color, amazing love, and all of this ministering to, whether it was Nicodemus, John the Baptist, the woman at the well, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the Pharisees, all these individuals, all these stories that we've been looking at, we'll continue to look at, I me. Mean, it's just God-loving fallen people. Rescuing fallen people. Offering them eternal life. Offering them relationship with God. And it says here in verse 36, back in John chapter 3, in verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's all. Just believing. Just looking up to Him accepting, embracing the reality that he brings truth from above and embracing the reality that he, as embodying truth, living in this world, lives perfect righteousness, lives out perfect love, dies on the cross, dies as a sacrifice, an amazing humility, an amazing grace, offers us reconciliation, oneness with our creator God. It is truly amazing. He says all there is to do for you is to believe and receive on the other hand, at the end of the verse it says, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now this is a, a stunning reality, kind of a jarring reality. As it says, the wrath of God, which speaks of a, a fierce opposition, a fierce anger of God, a righteous anger of God. It says it abides on him, which means not just that it, it's coming in the future, though there's that aspect of it, but this here is talking about, presently speaking, abides on a person who rejects. This is like what it's talked about earlier in John's Gospel, where, where Jesus has said, and elsewhere it's been said, the idea that um, um, basically to reject Him is to be under judgment. It's to, it's to show yourself as being under judgment. It's to, it's to show yourself as being in darkness, consigned to darkness, consigned to death. Well, here he just says the wrath of God abides on this one. And now, let's. This is kind of a very important uh, part of it. Well, upon whom is this? Well, it says, upon those who do not obey the Son. And, and maybe in your margin it suggests uh, you do not believe. L- literally, the word is it is uh, it's the idea of being unpersuaded. Now, think about, how, think about how perfect that term is in the original. The English obscures it a little bit, but think about how perfect that term is because we're talking about a testimony, right? Christ is testifying of the truth, He's saying, this is who your maker is. This is what he's like. This is what he offers you, broken, fallen, sinful people. This is what he is for you. He's testifying. And here it's saying, there are those who believe, who embrace the testimony, and who experience eternal life in union with God. And there are those who are unpersuaded by the testimony. Which is to say, God is continually, and through through general revelation, He is making Himself known. That's why it says back in the Psalms, that the heavens declare. It's like this verbal language of, like the heavens are speaking. Creation itself is crying out that we would, see and believe in our Creator. And more specifically here, it's talking about this testimony of Christ and the Spirit saying, and this is exactly what your Creator is like. And He's proclaiming Him and testifying. He says, look, for you to, not just to like, disobey in terms of, well, God said do this and you did that. No, it's like, for you to be unpersuaded by that testimony is to experience the opposition of God then, who has offered Himself and the truth in, in blazing glory and light and warmth and mercy. And it's to be under to be under wrath and, and to be not just again in the future, but even presently, as it's spoken here, it's present. And I, and I want to help a little bit more to appreciate what that involves. And, and in our humanness, thank God, we're redeemed, but in our humanness we can we can this resonates with us. And then it gives us compassion as well for the lost who have not yet seen or come to Christ. But turn to Isaiah chapter 1. okay? Isaiah 1 and we know that Jesus comes in fulfillment of all these prophecies. And Isaiah is saturated with messianic prophecies. But right in the beginning of Isaiah, God through his prophet is describing the the depth of the need of his people. He's describing their condition apart from him. And I just want you to see the vividness with which he describes it. All right, It's very similar to the themes of the Gospel of John. And it helps us appreciate what it means to be under this wrath and why we so desperately need rescue and why it's so great that through Christ we have it and he makes it available to all. Okay, verse 4. Listen to what it says. Alas, sinful nation... People weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. It's like the idea of He came to His own, His own received and not. It's like that same idea. Turning away, abandoning, despising Him. Then he says in verse 5, Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds. Not pressed out or bandaged. Not softened with oil. I mean, just miserable suffering. This imagery of physical suffering, of wounds and welts. And bruises, and not in any way remedied, no bandages, no oil. I mean, just absolute misery. He says this is what people invite into their lives in rejecting. Me as their creator, as their loving father, as their rescuer, as their redeemer, as the one who offers to secure them, as the one who offers to give them the truth they so desperately need and the light they so desperately need and the love they so desperately need. He says to reject, to abandon, to despise God is to be in complete and utter misery. Do you see that? And then later, in this amazing, just awesome picture, when it starts describing in more detail the Messiah who is to come. And it says, by his stripes we are what? Healed. He offers us healing. And a a big part, we could say, I think foundational to that healing is, he offers us truth. That we may come to him and say, That description in Isaiah 1, apart from you, God, that's me. I'm miserable in my pride. I'm miserable in my inflated sense of my own importance. I'm miserable in my anxiety. I'm miserable in my greed. I'm miserable in what I feel like I've got to fight to protect and secure in this world. I'm miserable when things don't go my way. Whatever the case may be, whatever it is, apart from God, those, the blinders, the darkness, it's just misery. And God has amazing mercy on us. Amen. And sent Christ into this world to rescue us. Amen. Not to um, sugarcoat it not to downplay or minimize the nature of our sin. In fact, in a way, he helps us, I mean, not just in a way, I mean, he really helps us see more clearly, hey, you have this problem because of your treatment of your God. And your God loves you anyway. Let that blow your mind. And he says, so I've come to set you free. Because when you know the truth, that's what the truth does, right? So... We think about, again, I think universally, it's like everybody's in search of truth to some degree. Okay, even even lost people and people who have never cracked the Bible in their lives—they're in search of truth to a degree, and you see it in their, you know, their desires to learn things and following the news, and, and, and you see it especially with us humans. And this is all of us—we're all the same in this regard. But we we just we're, we're like eager. I, I think about the, um, again, that the, the true grime. Genre, because of just an interest of mine and um, the story in, in Idaho. Maybe some of you have heard of this one. The University of Idaho students who were, who were killed and they, they now have a suspect that looks like this was the person, uh, Brian Koberger, uh, not to be confused with Brian Newberger, who we all know <laughs> and love. Very different guy. Uh, but one of the things, one of the details about that story that was fascinating was before they brought in Co-Burger, not Newberger, but Co-Burger. Before they brought in Co-Burger, there are all these internet sleuths. And this is just, just to illustrate again how we humans are just so full of nonsense. We just we want to find truth, but we're just so pathetic in our ability to get to truth. Okay, but they're, these internet sleuths are suggesting and they're breaking down videos and they're accusing all these probably, I mean, almost definitely innocent people. I mean, some of them for sure are innocent, and some of them their lives could be ruined because of liars. Saying, oh, it's so and so's ex boyfriend, it's this bartender over here, it's this person, and all building this narrative and this story. You're like, but the narrative's false. <laughs> but we humans love to turn, when the spotlight of investigation and inquiry is on someone else, man, we really dig into that. God comes to say, hey, just the spotlight's on you for a moment. I know that's scary, but this is the truth concerning the depth of your emptiness and need apart from your Maker. And the depth of my fullness, I am offering to you. I'm covering you. I'm forgiving you. I'm offering you fullness. As we're going to see in the next chapter, living water that you drink and never thirst again for the emptiness of your soul. And so he he just invites us to come in humility and embrace his truth. and To say, God, boy, there are so many things I don't know. There are so many things I don't understand. What I need is your truth and thank you for revealing it. Through your word, most clearly through your son, thank you for revealing truth. So that's our, that's our opportunity to just rejoice in that this morning and to think of those who are outside of the truth and to have mercy and compassion and to pray and, and, and thank God for opportunities and look for opportunities to share the good news and the light with those who desperately need it. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for... John chapter 3, and what you've revealed here, how your Son came to earth from heaven, and if you did not send him, Lord, we would be in the dark in such profound ways, but you did send him, and we're grateful, and we, um, in this moment, confess to you that we, we believe that He is the Christ. He is the Savior. And we accept eternal life from you as a gift, knowing you, being in relationship with you, being made alive, what we were made for, what we were created for, to be in relationship with you, to know the one from whom, through whom, to whom are all things. Thank you for revealing yourself. Help us as we think about people around us, people we interact with, our families, our community, our schools, our workplaces, wherever, neighborhoods. Help us to look with your eyes at people, to see them in their misery and their need, filled with wounds that are completely unbandaged, and to be able to offer them through both words and acts, to be able to offer them the love of Christ, which is what all of us need and what You have so graciously provided. So thank you for our time and study this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship. We look forward to, even as we sing this next song, we look forward to worshiping you for who you are and what you've done in Christ's name. Amen.